Hello, my name's Luke, and thank you for choosing to listen to my podcast for learners of English. This is episode 601, and this podcast is made possible thanks to donations from listeners and also thanks to support from my sponsors. The sponsor for this episode is Spoken. Spoken is an online company which specializes in teaching you English through messaging apps on your phone, like WhatsApp or Line, Viber, WeChat or Facebook Messenger and more. It's a really convenient and cool way to get some English practice into your daily life. And we all know that daily practice, even just for a few minutes at a time, is essential for developing proper English skills. The instructors at Spoken are all trained and experienced teachers from the US and the UK. What happens is that after assessing your needs and level, your instructor will communicate with you via text, sending you a variety of adapted tasks, which include a mix of all the skills, including speaking, using the microphone on your phone. Okay, so you're sent tasks, you can just Respond to those tasks in your own time whenever it's convenient for you. And Spoken have a great offer for you, and here it is. First, they're offering you a free one-hour consultation in order to establish your English needs and level. And that's completely free and no strings attached, which means that you can take the consultation, get the feedback, and then just carry on your life as normal with no obligation to take things further if you choose. But if you want to purchase one of their learning plans, then you will get 20% off your first month of any of their plans at all. And that's just because you're a Lepster. To get all the details, just go to getspoken.com slash LEP. Getspoken.com slash LEP. That's how you get those um, discounts and stuff. Or just click a Spoken logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks. This episode is called British Comedy, The Day-to-Day. And in this one, we'll be looking at another classic bit of British TV comedy. First, I'll tell you everything you need to know about the show, and then we'll listen to some clips and I'll explain the language for you. This time, it's The Day Today, which was originally broadcast on TV in the 1990s. 1994, to be exact. Yes, that's probably before some of you were even born. Imagine that. But we don't really care about whether this is old or brand new. It doesn't matter. I think good comedy always stands the test of time, and the day-to-day is no exception. It's still relevant and funny now, just like it was before. And in any case, I think it's part of the fabric of British culture now, just like many other classic bits of British TV comedy that we all grew up watching on TV. So what kind of programme is the day-to-day? Well, it's a, a surreal parody of news and current affairs TV programs. A surreal parody. A parody is like a sort of uh, a copy of something for, for sort of comedic purposes, copying something in a funny way. Surreal means kind of strange and uh, absurd. So it's a, a kind of absurdist parody of, of news and TV programs. It's a comedy version of the news, basically. So imagine the news, like maybe the BBC 10 o'clock news, but with everything turned up to 11, everything exaggerated. It's more dramatic, more pompous, meaning sort of full of itself, self-important, more self-important, and much more ridiculous than the real news. 
only well i say much more ridiculous it's really it's only slightly more ridiculous they've managed to kind of exaggerate certain elements which push it into ridiculous comedy but the day-to-day isn't just an impressions show of people copying news readers it had this amazing surreal twist to it which made it so much more subversive The show made fun of uh, specifically of the self-important nature of TV news and used surrealism and absurdity under the guise of a news broadcast. Because the news always presents itself as being very important, very serious, very heavy, completely trustworthy, stern, authoritarian even. These days, TV news has softened a bit, but not much. It still has this air of superiority, which I suppose is a necessary part of attempting to convey information in a factual, serious and balanced way. But TV news language, both oral and visual, has become a cliché. In fact, it had become a cliché back in the 90s, which makes it very ripe for making parody comedy. To give you an example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, here is... Here's an example of the opening of the BBC Nine O'Clock News, which was and still is, although now it's the Ten O'Clock News, uh, the flagship news programme for the BBC. So this is a, a sample of just the opening, I guess, 20 seconds or so of uh, the BBC's Nine O'Clock News from around the same time that the day-to-day was being broadcast on TV. So I'd like you to just listen out for the serious tone of the newsreader, Michael Burke, the important and significant sounding music, and also Michael Burke's slightly old school pronunciation in places. All of these things went into the day-to-day. So let me just get the video up here and then you can listen to the, this. Uh, listen to, listen out for the headlines. One of them in particular sounds sort of very dramatic. And then the music and also the way that Michael Burke speaks. Here on BBC One and a half an hour, Harry Enfield. But first, the nine o'clock news with Michael Burke. The Prime Minister has made an urgent appeal for party unity after the Conservatives' worst by-election defeat by Labour for 60 years. Russian commanders have fallen out in Chechnya. One has said he won't fight civilians. And the Moors' murderess, Myra Hindley, has been told she'll stay in jail until she dies. Good evening. John Major has admitted the result of the Dudley West by-election was very poor and has appealed for unity in his divided party. What does he say? He he, uh, has admitted that the result of the by-election was very poor. Very, very. That sort of little um, kind of tongue flap, that slightly rhotic R of very poor which is very typical of the way that Michael Burke used to speak. Whenever he said Americans, he would say Americans, which is something now that I like to do with my brother. Whenever we say America or Americans, we have to say America or Americans because it has this slightly patronising tone to it. So that was just a little sample of the BBC Nine O'Clock News from the mid-90s. So the difference between the day-to-day and other shows which have parodied the news was the surrealism. Basically, this meant taking a silly story and dealing with it in the most serious way possible. But there was more to it than that. The phrases used, the images created, and the slightly uh, the slight sense of twisted insanity create this version of the news that's part Monty Python, part Peter Cook, and part some kind of high-tech dystopian vision of the future. 
This is uh, absolutely a show that inspired Charlie Brooker to do work like Black Mirror. I don't know if you're familiar with Black Mirror. It's a series that you can see on Netflix, and it's all about sort of a twisted version of the future. Every episode has got some weird, twisted, uh, uh, dark edge to it. And uh, I think something like The Day to Day, another work by Chris Morris, who is the main guy behind this show, uh, one of them anyway, uh, that kind of work definitely inspired Charlie Brooker to do Black Mirror. And I, I know that for a fact. I've heard him talk about it in interviews. So that's the kind of thing. Um, in fact, the, the creator of Black Mirror, Charlie Brooker, worked with Chris Morris, the main guy behind The Day to Day. So for me, these things come from the same creative community, kind of clever, satirical, twisted, dark, and very co- uh, funny comedy writing in the UK. The day today was broadcast at 9pm on BBC Two, the same time as the national news on BBC One. So if you can imagine, you've got the real normal news on BBC One, and at exactly the same time on the next channel, you've got this weird, uh, surreal, comedic version of the news. Apparently, some people mistakenly watched the day-to-day thinking it was the real news and believed the stories, which you can totally understand because the day-to-day looks and feels exactly like uh, the news, the real news. So the parody of news tropes was spot on. It looked, sounded and smelt like news. The opening titles of the show captured that sense of drama, pomposity and urgency that you get from news programs. The set, you know, the, 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 where, the place where the news is filmed, the set looked just right, but slightly darker, like all the colours were much darker. The, the different characters were weird and bizarre, but they perfectly captured the sorts of journalists or presenters um, that uh, you could find Uh, on TV uh, at the time, and in fact, you still can, really. Uh, Alan Partridge, who you might know from previous episodes of this podcast, I did a series uh, last year about Alan Partridge, British comedy Alan Partridge, I believe it was called. So Alan Partridge made his first TV appearance on this show as the sports reporter with a chip on his shoulder who was always getting things wrong. Alan Partridge, of course, that character played by Steve Coogan. Uh, the language is a big part of it. The news readers speak in this kind of news dialect with a certain kind of intonation, complex sentences that go on too long, and mixed metaphors, as we will hear. So who wrote it and all that stuff? I need to kind of give credit to all the people behind this show and tell you their names and things. You might know some of them and, and some of the other work they've done. So I'll have a quick look at Wikipedia here. So, uh, the day today, British comedy, blah de blah. It was created by Armando Iannucci and Chris Morris, and is an adaptation of the radio program on the hour, which was broadcast on BBC Radio Four between 1991 and 1992, and was written by Morris, Iannucci, Stephen Wells, Andrew Clover, Stuart Lee, Richard Herring, David Quantic. So that that was the radio show on the hour, and that was the basis for the day today. For the day today, Peter Bainham who is a writer for Alan Partridge, joined the writing team. And Lee and Herring were replaced by Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews. Um, The day today was the television debut of Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge character. So that's basically who wrote it. Excellent performances by the cast, all of whom have gone on to do other great things. Chris Morris is a talent that people often forget about, but he was fearless, original, very clever, quite ruthless and a, a bit sick as well. The perfect recipe for great British comedy, in my opinion. He went on to do another show called Brass Eye, which was similar to the day-to-day, but more extreme and controversial. 
and is a potential other episode for Luke's English Podcast at some point in the future. Then various weird comedy projects by Chris Morris, like Blue Jam, an ambient mix album with subliminal st- uh, sketch comedy going on at the same time. Then he became a film director and he did the film Four Lions, which is about inept terrorists planning an attack in London. The film won various awards, as did The Day to Day, uh, an award-winning comedy show. Armando Iannucci, the other creator, went on to make The Thick of It and In the Loop, which are political satires about life on Whitehall. And then he made Veep, uh, which is the American equivalent following the vice president. He also directed a film called Death of Stalin, which you might have seen, and he's been involved in writing for Alan Partridge and other big projects. So that's Armando Iannucci. Other notable cast members are, of course, Steve Coogan, who went on to become successful as Alan Partridge, but has also starred in a few Hollywood movies and TV shows like The Trip and so on. All the other comedians on the show went on to do more great work. So you had people like Rebecca Front, Dune McKicken, Uh, Patrick Marber and David Schneider. A great cast. Other writers on the show were Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews, who went on to create Father Ted, which is that show about uh, a group of priests living on an island off Ireland. Hilarious program. Um, So the guys who wrote that also wrote for the day-to-day. And also Graham Linehan later uh, created The IT Crowd and Black Books two shows that you might well be uh, aware of because they're very sort of well-known TV comedies. So um, one of the writers for the day-to-day created those shows as well. All right then, so enough already. Let's now listen to some clips which you can find on YouTube and which I have posted on the page for this episode with time codes to help you find the the relevant clips. There are only six episodes of the day-to-day, but they're pretty packed with classic stuff. I've been through all six episodes and I've picked out some of my favourite moments to share with you. The plan is uh, to play them, then break them down sentence by sentence to make sure you understand them 100% and hopefully get the jokes. Although this show doesn't really use jokes per se, but in any sense, the aim is to help you understand and appreciate the humour and learn plenty of English in the process. You should, by the way, check out the page for this episode on the website because that is where you will find a transcript for a lot of it, certainly this introduction, and also lots of language notes and things, lots of details that will help you really get uh, a grip on the language which you are going to hear in this episode. Also, all the episodes of uh, the day-to-day are on YouTube, so you could check them all out later if you like, or you could buy the excellent DVD box set from the BBC, which has various extra stuff in it. Uh, I own that, and I recommend it to you strongly. It's only £5 on Amazon. Other bookshops are available. That is the uh, the day-to-day DVD box set. I have played some clips of this show before and explained them for language. You might remember Alan Partridge's World Cup countdown or his sports roundup. And there was also Peter O'Hanrahan, the economics uh, correspondent, interviewing the Minister for Ships, if you remember that. And I think also that we had the interview with the woman raising money by selling jam at some point uh, in the episode archive. But anyway, let's get into it. First, I want to play you just the opening titles of an episode, just for the music, really, because it sets the tone. Uh, And there are a few ridiculous headlines, too. So with that sort of um, clip from bbc's nine o'clock news in your head let's now listen to the opening titles of the day today and i've just got two questions 
Uh, do I then? So I've got two. Hold on a second. I'm just writing something here in the show notes. Okay, so two questions. First one is well, it's actually just one question. What are the three stories exactly? So you'll see, you'll hear headlines. What exactly are the stories? And then also, I'm going to describe the opening titles as we see them because visually they're also very funny and very clever. So let me just line up the clip now, and then uh, you can listen to it. Okay, we're ready. So listen out for the general tone. And the headlines are very, very strange and weird, and you might not understand them, but I will explain them in a second. Here is the, the, the opening few seconds, the opening titles of the day today. Here we go. The headlines tonight. Fist-headed man destroys church. Car drives past window in town. And Lester man wins right to eat sister. Now fact me till I fart. Coming up as stories in the programme. Peace talks collapse as Serbs strap 400 monkeys to the back of Owen's Volvo. That does make it harder to reverse. Okay, right. That's just the opening title. So the three stories, let's go through those first and then I'll just kind of describe what you can see in the titles. So those headlines again. Remember also, as we look at newspaper headlines or or news headlines, remember the way the, the grammar changes uh, I've talked about that on the podcast before. So the first story is this. Fist-headed man destroys church. <laughs> fist-headed man destroys church. A fist, that's when you, ma- you make your hand into a fist in order to punch something, right? That's your fist. So a fist-headed man destroys church. Presumably a man with a fist for a head. So he doesn't have a head. He's just got a big fist there. This man has presumably destroyed a church. You can perhaps imagine him headbutting the walls or something. Don't think about it too much, all right? It's supposed to be funny to hear such ridiculous things spoken in that voice using that register. Fist-headed man destroys church. And there's also an image of a, like a, a wall with a big hole in it. The next story is uh, car drives past window in town. Car drives past window in town. So this is obviously the most boring story ever. A car drove past a window in a town. And it's accompanied by a video of a car driving past a building. So that's car drives past window in town. And then we've got Lester man wins right to eat sister. Lester man. Lester is a town in England. So a man from Leicester, Leicester man, wins right to eat sister. So presumably a man from Leicester has taken court action, like he's gone to the court to take action, to allow him to eat his sister. So you could imagine that this was a real story, maybe, if he wanted to maybe sort of like marry his sister or cousin, especially if he's from Leicester. But this, in this case, it's to eat his sister. So Leicester man wins rights to eat sister. And then, of course, you, you hear Chris Morris goes, those are the headlines. Now fact me till I fart, which is a line that has um, brought a lot of joy to me over the years. Those are the headlines. Now fact me till I fart. Fact me, meaning give me facts until I fart, which obviously has a, a very clear, rude, suggestive 
uh, innuendo to it. Fact me till I fart. Uh, but it it somehow does it seems appropriate to the that tone of the news this is the news now fact me till i fart let me just go through the opening titles again to describe what you can see okay um you'll find this video on the page for the episode car drives past window in town and lester man wins right to eat sister now fact me till i fart Okay, so there are a lot of explosions and and huge globes emerging from a kind of primordial soup of news. So there's like this digital, um, I don't know how to describe it really, like a a melange of different pictures and things in the background, uh, images. And out of this soup emerge these huge globes. And each globe has got a different theme to it. So there's like, what's the first globe? There's the globe itself, the Earth, comes flying out. And another, another, there's two, there's two Earths that come flying out, okay, with an image of, like, some sort of terrorist in the background or something. And uh, Okay, I guess that's an environment globe, because it, the globe is all sort of in infrared um, vision. And there's a picture of Boris Yeltsin in the background, like, holding out a big machine gun. And then there's a big, like, I don't know what that is, but it's a huge spiky ball surrounded by, like, a mesh, a metal mesh of the earth. And I suppose this represents, like, security or policing or technology or something. But this big spiky blue metal ball in a mesh uh, globe with images of, like, the police clashing with, with protesters in a very violent way. And then there's another globe that comes out, and it's like the, a huge coin. It's like a pound coin in the shape of a globe, so that's obviously the, the business or finance news. And then there's, there's a sports ball that comes out, like a football comes flying out with images of, like, snooker in the background. And then the final globe that comes out is covered in, like, TV uh, images of news readers, and the, then the graphics go completely bonkers, and the titles, the day-to-day hit the screen hard with like the globe sort of opens out into a sort of different shape and then it flips round and that inverts and then light comes flying in and then the day-to-day appears on the screen. Coming up as stories in the programme. So there you go. Those are the headlines. Now fact me till I fart. Okay, now... Let's move on to the first proper clip. And this is, I've titled this one, War. So W-A-R, yeah, War. So this is a clip from, I think, something like episode five of the show. Um, And um, so in this situation, right, so the story is that Australia and Hong Kong have signed a treaty to create an amazing free trade agreement which will be very beneficial for both places and it marks a new beginning of peace and cooperation between them. So there's this fantastic new free trade agreement between Australia and Hong Kong. So Chris Morris, as the newsreader, interviews the British minister with special responsibility for the Commonwealth. So uh, this is the days when Hong Kong was still a British dependent territory. So this minister, this British minister is basically responsible for Hong Kong. 
So it's an interview with him and also the Australian Foreign Secretary. So both men who are responsible for the deal. The interview seems to start as a celebration of the New Deal, but the newsreader Chris Morris manages to manipulate the two of them into a diplomatic fight which ends in a declaration of war. And this is a great sketch. Uh, The newsreader causes a war in order to be able to cover it in dramatic fashion on his news show. For me, it's if it's about anything, it's about how the media can sometimes drive the agenda through their reporting. Not that the media is like officially biased. It's not state-owned and stuff. The BBC isn't officially biased. It's supposed to be objective. In fact, I think most journalists have an honest intention to report what's happening on the BBC, but they're always going to impose some of their worldview on the way that they explain stories. It's, in, it's almost impossible not to be biased in some way. But I think generally the, the reporters on the BBC do try to cover things things objectively, even if that's possible. Um, But you also get the sense that sometimes that some TV producers and presenters are a a bit seduced by their own power and they end up kind of pushing things in a certain direction under the guise of critical thinking. Also, perhaps news programmes thrive on creating drama and reporting on a war is somehow the dream of many broadcast journalists Or at least it seems like that because war correspondents have this air of action and adventure which borders on being romantic and the efficient and lively way that broadcasters deal with stories of war makes it seem like they're enjoying it somehow. There's precise technical information, reporters in the middle of the action and loads of dramatic music, graphics and images. So let's listen to this sketch which is about four minutes long. So over to you. Here are some things to listen out for so i'd like you to listen out for this how chris morris stokes up tensions and pushes the two diplomats towards war so notice the way that he's being manipulative Uh, notice chris morris's confrontational interview style which uh, is typical of bbc presenters like jeremy paxman notorious for bullying politicians on tv so often politicians are dealt with in this very sort of confrontational way regardless of what it is they're talking about they're always like you know being questioned and challenged on the bbc the look out for the mixed metaphors so a metaphor is i don't know i suppose even an idiom um, like for example if you say you know you've got the wrong end of the stick to get the wrong end of the stick means to to misunderstand the situation Okay, um, and um, another expression is to beat around the bush, meaning if you don't get to the point, like don't beat around the bush, just get to the point. So a mixed metaphor would be where you sort of mix up two things. Like, for example, you've you've grabbed the wrong end of the bush or um, you've grabbed the wrong end of the stick and you're beating around the bush with it or you're beating around with the wrong end of the stick, you know, mixed metaphors like that. Um, So, for example, in this uh, clip, you're going to hear this one. Right, sorry about that. You just heard my phone ringing because I've got my phone plugged into uh, my audio recorder in order to play these clips on YouTube on my phone because my computer, uh, the audio isn't working. So sorry about that. You just heard a little call there on my f- uh, coming in on my phone. Hopefully that won't happen again, but there might be little noises and things as we um, go through this. Anyway, well, I may be able to edit them out. So what was I saying? Mixed metaphors and cliches. Like this one, the stretched twig of peace is at melting point. 
the stretched twig of peace. So uh, a twig is like a little piece of wood. Like you might pull a twig off a tree. It, a twig might have a little leaf on it. So maybe the most famous example is like the image of, of peace, which is a dove, you know, that white bird carrying a fig, um, a twig from a fig tree. So that's like the twig of peace. So the stretched twig of peace, meaning this peace is being stretched. The stretched twig of peace is at melting point. <laughs> melting point is like a situation when things are going to go wrong. So it's like when there's enough pressure or heat, you reach melting point and then everything kind of changes or goes wrong. So you can't mix those two things up. You can't have the, the, the stretched twig of peace is at melting point uh, because those two metaphors don't really go together. You can't melt a, a twig. And also the other thing is like uh, someone saying, people here are literally bursting with war. Literally bursting with war. You can't literally burst with war. So that kind of language, mixing up language. Notice the glee, the sort of enthusiastic happiness uh, with the glee with which Chris Morris says, yes, it's war. He's delighted that there's war. Listen out for the over-the-top way that the show snaps into action once war has been declared. Suddenly they do this whole special broadcast about the war like they were ready and prepared for this. And as journalists, this is what they live for. Look out also for the name of the day-to-day smart bomb, uh, which I think is an actual bomb fired by the day-to-day. Obviously, it's not a real bomb. This is just a parody show. None of this actually happened. So watch out for the name of the day-to-day smart bomb, which I think is an actual bomb fired by the day-to-day with a camera on it so that they can report from the middle of the fight. So this new station have actually launched their own bombs in this war in order to cover the the war in as much detail as possible. And the day-to-day smart bomb has got a name. Uh, What is that name? And also, listen out for the clunky way, like the the, a way that's not smooth at all, of the clunky way that the show goes to the weather just after all that war. So they're reporting on the war, the the stretched twig of pieces at melting point. and then, and now the weather. And it's, that's quite a funny touch. So I will be going through all of this again after um, after uh, we've heard it. And I'll break it down to the bare bones. And I'll explain language and all of that stuff. Let me just sync up, get ready the, the video here. And then we'll listen to that clip of the day-to-day. It's war. Today's historic trade agreement between Australia and Hong Kong marks a new season of hope for the future of world trade. The two countries have been at each other's throats for years, but now the hatchet's been buried by a treaty which allows unrestricted trading between all parties at all levels. I'm joined now by Martin Crace, the British Minister with special responsibility for the Commonwealth, and Gavin Hawtrey, the Australian Foreign Secretary in Canberra. Gentlemen, this is pretty historic stuff. Well done. A future of unbridled harmony then, Australia? Yes, I think uh, Martin Crace and I can be uh, pretty satisfied. It's, uh, It's a good day. And if, as in the past, Australia exceed their agreement, what will you do about it? This is a very satisfactory treaty, which I'm sure will work well. Naturally, if the limits were exceeded, then this would be met with a firm line, but I can't see this being Uh, necessary. Mr Hawtrey, he's knocking a firm line in your direction. What are you going to do about that? Well, in that case, we just reimposed sanctions, as we did last year. Sanctions? Hang on a second. They've only just swallowed their sanctions, and now they're burping them back up in your face. I think sanctions is is rather premature talk. Certainly, if sanctions were imposed, we should should have to retaliate with appropriate measures. But I I think appropriate measures is a uh, euphemism, Mr Hawtrey. You know what it means. What are you going to do about that? Well, I'd just have to go back to Cabinet. And ask them about what? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a matter for the military. 
the military. I, I, th I think military measures is totally inappropriate reaction, and, and I think this is way, way over the top. Sounds like you're being inappropriate, are you? Of course I'm not being inappropriate, but Martin Crace knows that full well. This is the sort of misunderstanding that I thought we'd laid to rest during our negotiating period. Misunderstanding it certainly is. It's certainly not a treaty, is it? You're both at each other's throats, you're backing yourselves up with arms. What are you going to do about it? Mr Hawtrey, let me give you a hint. Bang! What are you asking me to say? You know damn well what I'm asking you to say. You're putting yourself in a situation of armed conflict. What are you plunging yourself into? You'd like me to say it? I want you to say it, yes. You want the word? The word! I will not flinch. You will not flinch from? War. War! Gentlemen, I'll put you on hold. If fighting did break out, it will probably occur in Eastman's town in the upper cataracts on the Australia-Hong Kong border. Our reporter Donald Bethlehem is there now. Donald, what's the atmosphere like? Tension here is very high, Chris. The stretched twig of peace is at melting point. People here are literally bursting with war. This is very much a country that's going to blow up in its face. Well, gentlemen, it seems you have little option now but to declare war immediately. Well, this is quite impossible. I couldn't take such a decision without referring to my superior, Chris Patton. He, he's in Hong Kong. Good, because he's on the line now via satellite. Mr Patton, what do you think of the idea of a war now? I'll take that as a yes. Very well, it, it's war. War it is. That's it, Chris. It's war. War has broken up. This is war. That's it. Yes, it's war. From now on, the day-to-day -day will be providing the most immediate coverage of any war ever fought. On the front line and in your face, Donald Bethlehem. Standing by, Douglas Hurd. The day-to-day -day smart bombs have nose-mounted cameras. This is smart bomb Stephen, and that is Susanna Gekeloys. I'll be reporting from inside the fight. Like some crazy Trojan. And keeping an eye on everything that's going on out there at the day-to-day -day news pipe, Douglas Trox. Chris, but first the weather from Sylvester Stewart. And now the weather, starting in the southeast, where the sun should plop through after a dull start, a bit like having your hand sewn back on after a farming accident. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Oh my goodness! I swear it never it never gets boring. I just always love watching this, no matter how many times. Okay, then. So we're going to go through that again. Have I got enough battery on my phone? Yes, I do. Let's go through that again. I did ask you some questions at the beginning. So what was what were the things? So well, yeah, the one question was like, what's the name of the smart bomb? The smart bomb's name is Stephen, <laughs> which is a great name for a smart bomb. Don't you think? Smart, smart bomb Stephen. Okay, let's go through this again and see if I can break it down for you. Um, here we go. It's difficult to do this on my phone because I can't tap backwards and forwards as easily. For the future of world trade. Okay. The two countries have been at each other's throats for years, but now the hatchet's been buried by a... The two countries have been at each other's throats. So if you're at someone's throat, or if two people are at each other's throats, it means that they are, you know, in conflict, arguing, like really strongly arguing with each other and, and hating each other. Um, okay, having fights. The two countries have been at each other's throats, but they've buried the hatchet. Hatchet is, a, I guess, like an axe, a kind of uh, like a, a weapon. Um, and uh, if you bury the hatchet, this is an expression that means that they've, you've agreed to make peace. So two people are fighting, they're at each other's throats, but then eventually they bury the hatchet and they agree not to fight anymore. So Australia and Hong Kong have buried the hatchet. A treaty which allows unrestricted trading between all parties at all levels. 
I'm joined now by Martin Crace, the British Minister with Special Responsibility for the Commonwealth, and Gavin Hawtrey, the Australian Foreign Secretary in Canberra. Gentlemen, this is pretty historic stuff. Well done. A future of unbridled harmony then, Australia? Yes, I think uh, Martin Crace and I can be uh, pretty satisfied. It's, uh, it's a good day. So far, so good, right? I think you probably understand these bits. Let's carry on. And if, as in the past, Australia exceed their agreement, what will you do about it? This is a very satisfactory treaty, which I'm sure will work well. Naturally, if the limits were exceeded, then this would be met with a firm line, but I can't see this being yeah. necessary. If the limits were exceeded, this would be met with a firm line. To, to be met with a firm line, that means that, uh, um, yeah, they would take a firm line, which is basically take a strong position on it. Take a firm line, take a strong position. So if Australia exceeded its, its, its limits, the, um, they would take a firm line. Sorry. Mr Hawtrey, he's knocking a firm line in your direction. What are you going to do about that? Well, in that case, we just reimpose sanctions as we did last year. Sanctions? In that case, we just reimpose sanctions as we did uh, last year. So sanctions. So to put sanctions on a country, economic sanctions are basically commercial and financial penalties applied by one or more countries against a targeted self-governing state, group or individual, it says here on the internet on Wikipedia. Economic sanctions may include various forms of trade barriers, tariffs and restrictions on financial transactions. So it's basically a form of economic war uh, where you maybe block uh, trade with the country or limit the amount of stuff that they can get. If a group of countries impose sanctions, it's like, it's like a way of imposing strong measures, not actual conflict, but economic, it's sort of like economic war. Okay. So that's what Australia would do if Britain uh, took a firm line with them. Hang on a second. They've only just swallowed their sanctions and now they're burping them back up in your face. They've just swallowed their sanctions. Mm. They've just swallowed their sanctions and now uh, they're burping them back up in your face. Nice language. I think sanctions is, is rather premature talk. Certainly if sanctions were imposed, we should, uh, we should have to retaliate with appropriate measures. We if sanctions were imposed, we should have to uh, uh, retaliate, like strike back. We should have to retaliate with appropriate measures. Measures, very nice word. Uh, measures, meaning things that you do, decisions that you take. Extreme measures. But I, I think can't appropriate measures is a uh, euphemism, Mr. Hawtrey. You know what it means. What are you going to do about that? Well, just the way he says, what are you going to do about that? Which sounds exactly like Jeremy Paxman. Just have to go back to Cabinet. And ask them about what? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a matter for the military. Uh, the military? I, I, I think military measures is totally inappropriate reaction. And, and I think this is way, way over the top. Sounds like you're being inappropriate, are you? <laughs> sounds like you're being inappropriate, are you? Just that tone... It's so reminiscent of people like Jeremy Paxman. Of course I'm not being inappropriate, but Martin Crace knows that full well. This is the sort of misunderstanding that I thought we'd laid to rest during our negotiating period. This is the sort of misunderstanding I thought we'd laid to rest during our negotiation period. If you lay something to rest, basically you, you, know, you lie it down and leave it. You, you, you leave it, it's a bit like burying the hatchet. You lay something to rest, you lay your grievance to rest. Put it down on the ground, let it, let it lie, okay? Misunderstanding it certainly is. It's certainly not a treaty, is it? You're both at each other's throats. You're backing yourselves up with arms. What are you going to do about it? Mr Hawtrey, let me give you a hint. Bang! <laughs> let me give you a hint. Bang! <laughs> what are you asking me to say? You Hear know that? damn well what I'm asking you to say. Hear the Australian accent? What are you asking me to say? What are you asking? What are you asking me to say? 
you damn, you know full well what I'm asking you, asking you and asking you. What are you asking me to say? You know what I'm asking you to say. Say, you're putting yourself in a situation of armed conflict. What are you plunging yourself into? You'd like me to say it? I want you to say it, yes. You want the word? The word. I will not flinch. You will not flinch from? War. I will not flinch. So flinch, right. Now, if you, if someone comes up to you, right, and they pretend to punch you or pretend to slap you, but they just punch or slap the air just in front of your face, what would you do? You'd, oh, you'd flinch. Okay, to flinch from something is like, take a position where you protect yourself from it. So I will not flinch from war means I will not hesitate or back away from it. Okay, that I won't try and protect myself from it. I won't flinch from it, meaning I'll, I'll choose to do it without any um, um, doubt, basically. I will not flinch from war. War. Gentlemen, I'll put you on hold. If fighting did break out, it will probably occur in Eastmanstown in the upper cataracts on the Australia-Hong Kong border. Our reporter Donald Bethlehem is there now. Donald, what's the atmosphere like? Tension here is very high, Chris. The stretched twig of peace is at melting point. People here are literally bursting with war. This is very much a country that's going to blow up in its face. This is a country that's going to blow up in its face. Well, gentlemen, it seems you have little option now but to declare war immediately. Well, this is quite impossible. I couldn't take such a decision without referring to my superior, Chris Patton. He... So he's saying I, I couldn't take such a decision without um, um, uh, talking to my superior, Chris Patton, who was the guy in charge of Hong Kong at the time. And then they on the show, they've got like a video footage of Chris Patton sort of quietly nodding. So this, uh, as you'll hear, Chris Morris says, well, we've got, we've got him on uh, live on satellite right now. And Chris Patton's just there nodding. He's in Hong Kong? I'll take that as a yes. So I'll take that as a yes is, is something you'd say, or I'll take that as a no. If you ask someone a question and they give you a response, it's not clear whether it's yes or no. For example, if, if someone says, if you say to someone, hey, do you want to go to the zoo? And they go to the zoo. And you'll say, well, I'll take that as a no then. You see? All right. Good, because he's on the line now via satellite, Mr. Patton. What do you think of the idea of a war now? I'll take that as a yes. Very well, it's war. War it is. That's it, Chris. It's war. War has broken out. War has broken out because things, you know, war breaks out. That's the phrasal verb we use uh, when saying that a war starts. We say that it breaks out. War has broken out. This is war. That's it. Yes, it's war. So it's the same music as the day-to-day music, but it's got this tragic minor key to it now, which is like... So it's, um, it's all fully prepared, and the whole uh, studio is lit up red with a big word saying war in the background. From now on, the day-to-day will be providing the most immediate coverage of any war ever fought. On the front line and in your face, Donald Bethlehem. Standing by, Douglas Hurd. The day-to-day smart bombs have nose-mounted cameras. This is smart bomb Stephen, and that is Susanna Gekeloys. I'll be reporting from inside the fight. Like some crazy Trojan. I'll be reporting from inside the fight. Like some crazy Trojan. So we know the Trojans, uh, the Trojan horse. And uh, the Trojan horse is famous because it was a way of uh, getting soldiers inside, where was it? Troy. And uh, 
so soldiers hid inside the horse. It was presented as a gift. And then when the horse was pulled inside the, the city, the soldiers came out and then there was a big battle. So I'll be reporting from inside the fight like some crazy Trojan. And keeping an eye on everything that's going on out there at the day-to-day news pipe, Douglas Trox. Chris, prefers the weather from Sylvester Stewart. And now, and now into the lovely ambient weather broadcast. Okay, so there you go. That was war from, I think, episode five. Let's move on to the next clip. I think this is going to be two episodes of the podcast. No surprise there. I think we're probably going to try and have three clips in each episode. Hopefully two episodes. So let's crack on. And the next clip is from episode two. And this is uh, Peter O'Hanrahan. So the story is this. Ministers in Europe have been involved in difficult discussions about quota rates for trade with the US. I suppose quota rates means things like taxation rates, tariff rates and stuff like that. You know, the usual things that are agreed upon when agreeing trade um, uh, agreements. That's what you do. You agree trade agreements when making trade agreements. So ministers in Europe have been involved in difficult discussions about quota rates for trade with the US. I expect that they've been debating what the rates should be, with some ministers disagreeing about the final decision. So, economics correspondent Peter O'Hanrahan is in Brussels because he says he's spoken to the German minister and he knows how he feels about the decision. So Peter O'Hanrahan's name is obviously a joke, but it's actually based on a real correspondent called Brian Hanrahan. I think it's an Irish name, Hanrahan. But there was a real uh, correspondent called Brian Hanrahan who used to be on the news. Um, He actually used to call our house sometimes to speak to my dad because my dad used to be a BBC newsman. I don't know if you knew that, but my dad used to work for the BBC for many years. And so uh, a lot of these people actually used to call the house or even come to the house sometimes. So I've met a lot of BBC news reporters and stuff. So Brian Hanrahan used to call our house sometimes to speak to my dad. And also Michael Burke, who you remember from the BBC Nine O'Clock News, He used to even come round to the house sometimes. He was one of the presenters of the Nine O'Clock News, who is parodied by Chris Morris on the day-to-day. In fact, I feel like I grew up in a news household because my dad often reviewed videos of presenters. We always watched the news. There were BBC pens and mugs all around the house, and we sometimes met BBC TV presenters and newsreaders. I never met Alan Partridge, though, unfortunately. So, Peter O'Hanrahan is incompetent, stupid, and also petulant which means that he kind of disobeys orders and he lies childishly. It turns out that Peter hasn't spoken to the German minister. And in fact, he just stayed in his hotel room the whole time. So he's making up the information and he can't even speak German. So listen out for the way that Chris Morris is sceptical about what Peter is saying. And he starts to question his story subtly before full on bullying him and telling him off like a naughty schoolboy. So if you can imagine someone telling you a story, so for example, oh, you came home late last night, what did you do? Oh yeah, I just um, I just went to my friend's house. You went to your friend's house, really, until four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's right, um, we just stayed up playing computer games. You played computer games at your friend's house. Which friend was this? You know, that kind of way that parents start questioning children in a sceptical manner. So look out for the way that Chris Morris does that with Peter. Listen out for Peter's pathetic attempt to speak German. 
clearly pretending that he he knows the language and actually spoke to the German minister when he doesn't and he didn't. Okay, so those of you out there who know German and who speak it, you're going to find it completely ridiculous how Peter is attempting to uh, pretend to speak German when obviously he doesn't know the language. Listen out also for how Peter finally admits that he doesn't actually know what happened and he didn't speak to the minister at all. He's like a teenager admitting that he's lying. So let's listen then to Peter O'Hanrahan and the German uh, minister. A week of foul-tempered debate in Europe ended this afternoon as finance ministers agreed new quota rates for trade with the United States. In Brussels is our economics correspondent, Peter O'Hanrahan. Peter, what is the new rate? It's 30%, Chris. Agreement was a long time coming, but in the end, the decision was unanimous. What was the Germans' reaction? Because they've been holding out for 40%, haven't they? That's right. Uh, When I spoke to Finance Minister Reinhardt earlier today, he said he didn't like the deal, but he had to go along with it. Really? You spoke to him yourself. You managed to pin him down. He's a pretty tricky man, isn't he? That's right. Where did you get hold of him? He was in the hotel. And you conducted a conversation with him about the quota rates? That's right. He said he didn't like it, but he had to go along with it. What language did you conduct this conversation in, Peter? German. You spoke to him about the technicalities of the deal in German? Yes. So what's the German for 30%? 30 percenter. 30%. Yes. And what about that quote you attributed to him? I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. That's what he said. How did he say it? I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. In German, how did he say it? Ich nichten lichten. Presumably you mean rufen Sie ein Taxi bitte, sonst verpassen meinen Flug. Yes. No, you don't, Peter, because that means get me a taxi, I'm late for my plane. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you speak to the German finance minister about the new deal this afternoon? No. And what was his reaction? I don't know. Peter, thank you. Environment. (laughs) I love the way it just ends up with, Peter, thank you. Like he's satisfied that he's fully told him off. Okay, we're going to go through that again. Let me just rewind here on my phone, which is much more difficult to use this than it is to use my computer but that's just what we're dealing with here okay states in brussels is our economics correspondent peter o'hanrahan peter what is the new rate it's 30 percent, chris i don't think i need to explain most of it i think this is probably pretty clear don't you think agreement was a long time coming but in the end the decision was unanimous what was the germans reaction because they've been holding out for 40 percent they've been holding out for 40 percent like waiting holding on um yeah, holding out for something because something's coming and you're waiting patiently for it. Um, we've been holding out for 40%. That's right. Uh, when I spoke to Finance Minister Reinhardt earlier today, he said he didn't like the deal, but he had to go along with it. Really? You spoke to him yourself. You managed to pin him down. He's a pretty tricky man, isn't he? You managed to pin him down. If you pin someone down, it means you, you find them in one particular place. You manage to get hold of them. So if someone is like difficult to find or if they're unavailable, they're moving around a lot. Like you can imagine someone like a businessman or something who's moving around a lot, doing lots of things in different places. You're trying to find that person to speak to them. You're trying to pin them down, like get them to stay in one place just so you can talk to them. I'm trying to pin you, pin him down. I've been trying to pin you down for ages. He's difficult. He's difficult to pin. It's difficult to pin him down. That's right. Where did you get hold of him? He was in the hotel. And you conducted a conversation with him about the quota rates. That's right. He said he didn't like it, but he had to go along with it. 
What language did you conduct this conversation in, Peter? German. You spoke to him about the technicalities of the deal in German? Yes. So what's the German for 30%? Trenta percenter. Trenta percenter. <laughs> oh, my God. Dreizig percent. Yes. And what about that quote you attributed to him? I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. That's what he said. How did he say it? I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. So this is where Chris Morris says something in German. I don't know if you speak German. I don't know what Chris Morris's German is like. But anyway, he says, what is it? Uh, order me a taxi. I'm late for my plane. In German. How did he say it? Ich nichten lichten. <laughs> I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. it was ich, ich nichten lichten. <laughs> Um, which someone who doesn't know German might... I mean, this something that sounds vaguely German. Ich nickten lichten. Presumably you mean, rufen Sie ein Taxi bitte, sonst verpassen meinen Flug. Yes. No, you don't, Peter, because that means get me a taxi, I'm late for my plane. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you speak to the German finance minister about the new deal this afternoon? No. And I love the way he just folds. Like, uh, no, I didn't. What was his reaction? I don't know. Thank you. Environmation. I love it. Every time Peter Hanran comes on, it's something like that. He's, he's, he's got something wrong. He's lying. He's like a schoolboy, and Chris Morris tells him off. Okay, let's move on to the third clip that we're going to have in this episode. Needs to speed up a little bit, don't I? So, this is from episode three. I've called it some kind of drubbing incident. Drubbing is a some sort of obscure, old-fashioned word, which means hitting, I think. Beating, okay? But it's a very old-fashioned word. Beating someone. Give someone a good drubbing. Like if you found someone stealing your horse, you might catch them and give them a jolly good drubbing, meaning you'd, you'd hit them or beat them. So this sketch is called... Oh, that's the door. Hold on. Wait, that's not the name of the uh, sketch. It's not called... Oh, there's the door. I just had to pause and unpause the podcast there. I don't know if you noticed. Did you hear the sound of uh, the intercom? So I had to just let someone in to deliver a package. Slightly out of breath now. I've been going up up and down stairs. So anyway, sorry for that interruption. Lots of interruptions in this this podcast episode today. Phone calls, people arriving at the door. Okay, this is what happens when you record podcasts at home. So anyway, this sketch this story is i've called it some kind of drubbing incident from episode three of the day today so in this one we start with uh, a sports report from alan partridge but it gets interrupted with the news that the queen and the prime minister have had a fight there's been some kind of drubbing incident we then follow the story and learn that during their weekly meeting the prime minister john major at the time punched the queen Now, this sounds shocking, of course, especially now that the Queen is elderly and, of course, it's the Queen. Punching the Queen is not something that, you know, people readily laugh at. But that's not the point. You know, we're not laughing at uh, someone punching the Queen. And, in fact, the Queen gets her revenge later. Uh, But that's not the point. It's not, hey, the Queen got punched. That's not it. Instead, the show is mocking the way that the news would deal with a constitutional crisis. In this case, the crisis is kind of stupid. Uh, springing into action in order to cover the crisis in full detail like they did with the war. It's also just ridiculous to imagine the Queen having a brawl with anyone. So I'd like to listen out for these things. 
Listen out for the report from Jennifer Gumpitz in front of Buckingham Palace. This report is so realistic. There isn't really much comedy in it beyond the bizarreness of the story. It's just a perfect little parody of a report from a correspondent. If you didn't know the show was a comedy show, you would think it was a real report, definitely. It's so realistic. And then look look out for this quote. And as a result of that broadcast, the crisis has deepened dramatically. As a result of the broadcast, the crisis has deepened dramatically. So the news actually makes the situation worse by broadcasting footage of the fight. And then they start reporting on that too. So the news, like, reporting the footage makes the crisis much worse. And then they start reporting on how the crisis is even worse now as a result of that broadcast. These are little things that you don't notice maybe at first. Um, listen, listen out for Spartacus Mills, who is the history expert. And Chris Morris says, can you sum it up in a word? Meaning, can you summarize the situation in a word? Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? What is the sound that Spartacus uses to sum up the situation? What sound does Spartacus use to sum up this situation? And listen out for the special broadcast, which was pre-recorded and designed to be played at times of crisis. So imagine there's a crisis in the country. They might show some special uh, little video montage as a way of basically saying to people, this is Britain and everything is all right. It's okay. It's fine. And it's filled with proud patriotic sentiments. The irony for me is that this kind of thing, this kind of patriotic bit of British propaganda to tell people everything's okay, this is the kind of thing that's either, A, in fact needed now in order to make British people feel that everything's fine, or it's the sort of thing that would be used by the Leave campaign, like the Brexit party, to convince people to vote Brexit. So what's the solution to the crisis which has been agreed by both sides then at the end? Okay, see if you can hold those things in mind. Let's, let me just get the video ready and then we'll listen to some kind of drubbing incident. Alan, sport. Thanks, Chris. Well, it was a very amusing incident on the golf Sorry, course. Sorry, Alan, I'm going to have to interrupt you there. We've just heard news of a dramatic incident. The Queen and John Major have had a fight. It's believed to have happened during the Prime Minister's weekly meeting at Buckingham Palace. On the big screen now is our correspondent, Jennifer Gumpertz. The Prime Minister's weekly meeting normally lasts an hour, but today he was seen to leave hurriedly after just 17 minutes. It's clear that a strong disagreement took place a disagreement which may have involved physical violence. Some palace staff said they heard loud swearing voices and the sound of bodies falling against furniture. One said he saw Mr Major emerge with a red mark across his face and bleeding legs. Seconds after the Prime Minister's departure, the Queen's doctor arrived at speed and ran inside. Neither the palace nor Downing Street have issued an official statement so far. And a few moments ago, we received this amateur video footage which seems to show that the Queen and John Major were involved in some kind of drubbing incident. And as a result of that broadcast, the crisis has deepened dramatically. I'm joined by our crisis correspondent, Spartacus Mills. Spartacus, this is huge history happening, isn't it? It's bigger than that, Chris. It's large. I mean, if you've got a history book at home, take it out, throw it in the bin. It's worthless. The history books now will have to be rewritten. What will they say? They'll quite simply say, John Major punched the Queen. Everything else will be a footnote. A push for time. Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? Spartacus, thank you. Alan, sport. Thanks, Chris. 
Well, as I said, it really was... Shut it, Alan. I want you to stop. All programmes have now been suspended on all channels to allow the broadcast of this film held in reserve for times of crisis. Britain is a nation built on the very scowling face of adversity. Its dauntless spirit unbowed by any crisis. This is Britain at its best. Okay, so what we've got here is a montage of like images of uh, scenes that are supposed to make us proud. There's a police officer dancing in the street, smoking a big spliff. There are bankers playing around on the steps of the Bank of England. There's like, um, you know, doctors taking care of an old woman, neighbours throwing a baby from one garden to the next garden to, to look after it together. Uh, there are images of the English countryside and ridiculous place names. Uh, we have some very strange place names in England and also other images just like things that are supposed to make you feel warm inside for example a man letting a woman drive his car away uh, which is kind of a visual joke which I'm not going to go into now pictures of doctors and patients and they're making each other laugh in spite of probably very tragic circumstances Uh, a man standing in the countryside he's got a cigarette he doesn't have a lighter looking for a lighter and a gang of children arrive with and they've all got cigarette lighters and they help him light his cigarette the bankers are still playing on the steps of the bank of england and they're all their boss comes out and this is britain oh and in this hold on so the bankers basically all go back inside and then the voiceover continues this is britain and in this glittering sea this perfect fusion of man and mineral, we know that conflict will always perish in the brotherhood of flags. This is Britain, and everything's all right. Everything's all right. It's okay. It's fine. During that film, we've been watching number 10. There isn't much going on there at the moment, but both sides have now agreed a solution to the crisis, which will involve the Queen processing to number 10 and returning several punches to Mr. Major's face. That won't happen for a while now, so let's take the business. Kilatali sisters, how many number 10s are there in your report? Thanks, Chris. There was a big smell of fear in the city today when leisure conglomerate Bottington fiasco... Okay, so that's the business news, which nobody understands. Um, Okay, so the solution to the crisis, which has been agreed by both sides, is that the Queen will process on Downing Street. So she's going to do a big procession to Downing Street where she will um, deliver several punches to Mr. Major's face in retaliation. Uh, Let me go through that clip again then uh, in order to clarify and perhaps teach some bits of language as we go. Um, Just rewinding here, rewinding, 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 rewinding. Uh, okay, we're nearly ready. Here we go. Alan, sport. Thanks, Chris. Well, it was a very amusing incident on the golf Sorry, course Alan, tonight. I'm going to have to interrupt you there. We've just heard news of a dramatic incident. The Queen and John Major have had a fight. 
It's believed to have happened during the Prime Minister's weekly meeting at Buckingham Palace. On the big screen now is our correspondent, Jennifer Gumpitz. So this, this report from Jennifer Gumpitz is, as I said, very realistic. But there are a couple of little touches which are ridiculous. Like, what is it? So a palace staff said that they saw Mr. Major emerging with a red mark across his face and bleeding legs. Um, so no, somehow that such specific injuries make you kind of wonder what kind of fight they had. So he emerged with a red mark across his face and bleeding legs. So what did she do? She kicked him in the legs? The Prime Minister's weekly meeting normally lasts an hour. But today he was seen to leave hurriedly after just 17 minutes. He was seen to leave hurriedly. So to be in a hurry. If you're hurrying somewhere, if you're in a rush, or if you're perhaps <clears throat> rushing somewhere, uh, yeah, you could do something hurriedly. Hurriedly. H-U-R-R-I-E-D-L-Y. Okay. Um, so he had to leave in a hurry. He had to leave hurriedly. It's clear that a strong disagreement took place, a disagreement which may have involved physical violence. Some palace staff said they heard loud swearing voices and the sound of bodies falling against furniture. I love that. Some palace staff said they heard loud swearing voices. So but <laughs> I guess the Queen and the PM were not just fighting, they were swearing at each other. You you fucking you you know that kind of thing and the sound of bodies falling against furniture one said he saw mr major emerge with a red mark across his face and bleeding legs seconds after the prime minister's departure the queen's doctor arrived at speed and ran inside neither the palace nor downing street have issued an official statement so far Nice bit of English. Neither the Palace nor Downing Street have issued an official statement so far. There's your neither nor. Neither the Palace nor Downing Street have issued a statement so far. Nice bit of inversion there, don't you think? Oh, yeah, lovely bit of inversion. And a few moments ago, we received this amateur video footage, which seems to show that the Queen and John Major were involved in some kind of drubbing incident. So what you can see there is like shaky uh, camcorder footage of a fight, but you can't really see what's going on. You can kind of see the window shaking around and some figures apparently struggling with each other. And as a result of that broadcast, the crisis has deepened dramatically. I'm joined by our crisis correspondent, Spartacus Mills. Spartacus, this is huge history happening, it, isn't it? It's bigger than that, Chris. It's large. I mean, Don't worry. Large doesn't necessarily mean bigger than big. This is just a stupid word joke. It's bigger than that, Chris. It's large. So actually, big and large mean the same thing. Um, if you've got a history book at home, take it out, throw it in the bin. It's worthless. The history books now will have to be rewritten. The history books will have to be rewritten. Kind of a cliche. What will they say? They'll quite simply say, John Major punched the Queen. Everything else will be a footnote. A push for time. Can Everything else will be a footnote. A footnote. So if you are a footnote in history, it means you're not really part of the significant narrative. You're just a footnote. In a book, you've got the main text. And at the bottom, sometimes you get footnotes, like a little asterisk or a little symbol and then a little bit of small text at the bottom explaining it. So everything else will be a footnote. Uh, the history books will say simply, John Major punched the Queen. Everything else will be a footnote. Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? <laughs> Spartacus, thank you. Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? <laughs> Which I think is pretty, pretty good summary of the situation now. Like Brexit. Can you sum it up in a word? No. A sound? Alan, sport. Thanks, Chris. Well, as I said, it really was... Shut it, Alan. I want you to stop. 
All programs have now been suspended on all channels to allow the broadcast of this film held in reserve for times of crisis. Britain is a nation built on the very scowling face of adversity. Britain is a nation built on the very scowling face of adversity. Adversity means basically difficulty, like difficulty to live, difficulty to survive when the conditions are difficult. Because in England, you know, we have adversity because it's cold and uh, we don't have that many um, like uh, native foods and things. Um, It's a tough place to live. Certainly it used to be. Um, So Britain, Britain and also adversity in the war as well, of course, is what you think of. Britain is a nation built on the very scowling face of adversity. Scowling is like a very tough, a very tough expression on your face. Um, so a scowl is an angry or bad-tempered expression on your face. So there's a picture uh, in the montage here of a, a, a bulldog, which is like the symbol of Britain. And you kind of think of Churchill as well. You know, the bulldog's face, the scowling face of adversity. It's dauntless spirit, unbowed by any crisis. It's dauntless spirit, unbowed by any crisis. Um, so dauntless means fearless, basically. Uh, we had the word daunted in an episode of LEP Premium recently. Uh, Premium 13 Part 3 had the word daunted. We also have the word dauntless and dauntless spirit. It's an adjective. Uh, it's dauntless spirit, unbowed by any crisis unbowed so it means it's not moved it doesn't bend um in any crisis britain is a nation built on the very scowling face of adversity its dauntless spirit unbowed by any crisis this is britain at its best long-term listeners will recognize that this is britain at its best they'll recognize that from the uh lep mega jingle which you can find in the luke's english podcast app by the way so then we have all the images of the countryside and stuff, which I can skip through. And then the bankers going in inside. This is Britain. And in this glittering sea, this perfect fusion of man and mineral. In this glittering sea, in this perfect fusion of man and mineral. You can hear that, that, that R again. Man and mineral. I would say man and mineral. But he says man and mineral, which is just that kind of slightly old fashioned feature of pronunciation that you hear from people like Michael Burke on the BBC. This perfect fusion of man and mineral. Um, I actually think it's very poetic language, even though it's very funny. This glittering sea. okay, because it's an island in the sea. This perfect fusion. A fusion is a combination, a mix of man and mineral. Man, we know, is people, and mineral, meaning the earth, the stone, the rock of, of Britain. This perfect fusion of man and mineral. We know that conflict will always perish in the brotherhood of flags. <laughs> we know that conflict will always perish. Perish means die. But notice the way he says it, perish. We know that... All conflicts will perish in the brotherhood of flags, <laughs> which is another way of a funny way of referring to the UK. We are the brotherhood of flags because you've got England 
uh, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland all combined into the, uh, the Union flag. So conflicts will always perish in the Brotherhood of Flags. This is Britain and everything's all right. Everything's all right. It's okay. It's fine. During that film, we've been watching number 10. There isn't much going on there at the moment, but both sides have now agreed a solution to the crisis, which will involve the Queen processing to number 10 and returning several punches to Mr. Major's face. That won't happen for a while now, so let's take the business. Kilatley Sisters, how many number 10s are there in your report? Right, so let's have a little listen to the business report, because it doesn't make any sense at all. And it's supposed to be like, for people who don't know about business, don't know about finance and things like that, the money markets, the business news can be completely baffling. And this is supposed to be about that. So notice there that Chris Morris said, how many number 10s are there in your report or something? So you'll hear him go, there's one when there's a 10. Otherwise, though, if you don't understand Collaterally Sisters and this business report, then good, that's the point, that's the joke. It's just complete gobbledygook nonsense. Thanks, Chris. There was a big smell of fear in the city today when leisure conglomerate Bottington Fiasco fell 10% There's years, one. leaving the cup open for a hammer bid from Silica Fist Fruit at 12. There were no dollars today. I'm Collaterally Sisters. On to the money markets. Quick look at the currency kidney. There's a lot of pressure there on the Bundesvessel, leading to a slight inflammation in the exchange tract, causing a negative flow of waste pounds across all international membranes. <laughs> so in summary then, seven's a bit younger. Chris. Oh my God. Let's have a look at the currency kidney. So normally you have like currency comparison tables or graphs or charts. In this case, it's a kidney, you know, like the organ from your body, uh, which helps you to, you know, purify your, your, your body and stuff. Uh, let's have a look at the currency kidney. We have to we have to go back to that because some of the, this is brilliant, right? Because I mean, this is genuinely really clever writing because they're mixing up business news with sort of um, physiological medical information, using the kidney as a metaphor f- somehow for the currency. It doesn't work. It's just a, a stupid image of the currency kidney. So you've got a picture of a kidney. You know the way the kidney is shaped? It's kind of curved in the middle and goes round. You've got like the, is that the Deutschmark on one side and the pound on the other side? And there's like a tube coming into one side of the kidney that's black and red and yellow. So I suppose that's representing the Deutschmark coming into the currency kidney. Let's have a look at the currency kidney. Silica fist fruit at 12. There were no dollars today. I'm Collaterally Sisters. On to the money markets. Quick look at the currency kidney. There's a lot of pressure there on the Bundesvessel, leading to a slight inflammation in the exchange tract. There's a lot of pressure there on the Bundesvessel, leading to a slight inflammation in the exchange tract. Inflammation, we know, that's when something swells up. In the exchange tract, a tract is like a part of the body where one thing transfers to another thing. So there's an inflammation in the exchange tract. Normally, in financial language it's the exchange rate exchange mechanism here we're talking about the exchange tract so mixing financial language with medical language uh there's a slight inflammation in the exchange tract which is supposed to explain something to do with the relationship between the deutschmark and the pound causing a negative flow of waste pounds across all international membranes (laughs) The, the, the the slight inflammation in the exchange tract causing a uh oh what is it 
Onto the money markets. Quick look at the currency kidney. There's a lot of pressure there on the Bundesvessel, leading to a slight inflammation in the exchange tract, causing a negative flow of waste pounds across all international membranes. A negative flow of waste pounds across all international membranes. And we see the edge of the kidney and lots of pound coins flying out through a membrane of flags. You've got the French flag, the American flag, Australian flag, Japanese flag, Indian flag, and all these pound, note, pound coins are flowing out. So it's causing a, a negative waste of pounds across all international membranes. Oh, my goodness. So in summary, then, seven's a bit younger. Chris. Seven's a bit younger, apparently, in summary. OK, just, a, just supposed to be a joke about how confusing business reports can be. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of um, part one of what I think is going to be a two-part episode. I sincerely hope that you've enjoyed listening to these clips of the day today. I encourage you to listen to all the, ep- watch all the episodes, maybe get the DVD. Um, it's brilliant. Let me know in the comments section. As usual, I don't know what you're going to be thinking of these um, comedy episodes. Because uh, for me, it's a bit of a risk because I kind of think I'm just going to be explaining the humour away, you know, dissecting the frog. Because, as we know, uh, uh, explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. It's possible to learn something from it, but the frog dies in the process. So in the same case, I hope that the comedy hasn't died in the process of me explaining it here. Instead, on the contrary, I hope that you've enjoyed and appreciated what I consider to be genuinely really, really good comedy. Um, and... Uh, Stay tuned for part two, which should be arriving soon. I look forward to reading your comments, though. Please do write your comments in the comments section. I would like to know what you think about all of this. Okay, good. I look forward to reading them. But for now, it's just time for me to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. 